This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey everybody, and welcome back. So today's episode is going to require some context for anyone who's not familiar with the origin of this show. So back in 2017, when I started this podcast, I was doing an internship with my friend and mentor, Charlie Rendell, on bamboo building in Lake Atitlan, Guatemala. I had been traveling back and forth to Guatemala for a number of years. I had originally gone down there with a friend to learn Spanish, and I just ended up coming back for years to see friends and just because I loved that country. In my time there, it was almost impossible not to get connected with all kinds of projects and initiatives that try and improve the living conditions for local people. So Guatemala is one of the poorest countries in the world, and the second poorest in Latin America by GDP. And while I understand that that's not the only meaningful metric for quality of life, there was just no ignoring the fact that the opportunities and resources that I saw in most other places that I traveled to and that I had taken for granted in my life up until then were really drastically lacking in most parts of that country. For this and many other reasons, which we'll touch on briefly in today's conversation, everywhere you go in Guatemala you'll find non-governmental organizations or NGOs, as well as all types of charities and aid entities claiming to work to address everything from malnutrition to ecological challenges, sanitation, infrastructure, education, and everything else in between. It seemed like every foreigner who I met there who wasn't a backpacker worked for one of these groups, and when my friends and I eventually bought a small plot of land and started to put down roots, we began to learn a lot about the aid industry that was all around us. Now between rumors, first-hand stories, and even my own experience, it became clear that more than a small percentage of these organizations were not as altruistic as they projected. It was well known that many of these were actually fronts for money laundering. Others simply paid out large salaries for foreigners to attend events and fundraise while little work got done on the ground. Stories of corrupt sequestering of funds were common, and even among these entities that were really committed to their work, I heard so much about communities having solutions forced on them with little say in the matter. Projects getting abandoned before completion, technological fixes handed over with little or no training, and so many others that I could go on about. Now, despite this grim picture that I'm painting of the aid industry in Huate, I did get to know and make friends with a handful of people who really took the time to understand and integrate with those chosen communities that they were working with before devising solutions. I got to know folks who were also putting down roots and really had some skin in the game when it came to the outcomes for their work and their impact. And today I want to take a look at one in particular called Seeds for a Future as much for the work that they're doing as for the approach and the learning that guide their initiative. This organization first came to my attention when my close friend Leilani reached out to put me in touch with Daylin Culver, who is their director of operations. Leilani has been on the show before, and she's one of the few people that I know who has traveled extensively within Guatemala and has an intimate knowledge of both the good and the reprehensible aid work that's happening in the country. So when she brought Dalen and Semillas para un Futuro to my attention, I knew it would be worth looking into. So in this session, both Dalen and Leilani joined me to talk about the simple beginnings of this project and the unique context in which it got off the ground. They helped to outline the challenges that the communities they work with are facing and the long-term approach to co-create solutions along with the people that they collaborate with. We also cover the principles that guide the progress and the decisions within the project and the external challenges that Daylin and Leilani work from outside to support. 
Now, charity and aid work continue to be fraught with controversy and skepticism, and I will not make the assertion today that the approach that Seeds for a Future is taking is the only effective one. I do, however, appreciate the perspective and the insight that both of these women bring to such a tricky subject, and I really hope that it will make space to continue this conversation in future episodes, as well as on the Regenerative Scales Discord community. So, after that long intro, I'll hand things over to Dalen Culver and Leilani Yatz. Welcome, Leilani and Dalen. Uh, Leilani, you've been on the show before, and I'm thrilled to get to talk to you again. It's always a joy to check in with you. And Dalen, this is your first time on, but you and Leilani are good friends at this point. You've made connection in Guatemala, and she was the one who recommended that I invite you on for a very good reason. And we'll get into more details about that. But first of all, Dalen, uh, how are you? Where are you? And maybe give us a little idea about what you're working with in Guatemala that brings you to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so glad that Leilani could put us in touch. Um, so I'm actually joining from Edinburgh, Scotland, where I am based these days. Uh, I have kind of lived and worked in Guatemala off and on since 2015 um, and came to Edinburgh about four years ago to do a master's in international development, um, did my research on sustainable agriculture and malnutrition in Guatemala. Um, that being said, I have a very interdisciplinary background. I feel like I've kind of bounced all over the place um, between working in the performing arts, uh, working on issues of women and women's empowerment, mental health. Um, I co-founded a small social enterprise looking at the mental health challenges facing impact-driven professionals like folks working in the humanitarian sector. Um, and then worked with NGOs across Central America before I took on this role with Seeds for a Future, Semillas para Futuro, and that's how I met Leilani. Um, so she and I are now working to uh, kind of assist in the administrative uh, functions of this small, very grassroots NGO. Brilliant. And I'm really surprised that we never crossed paths since our timeline in Guatemala overlapped in those years. But I'm really glad that you connected with Leila. And Leila, can you tell us about what you're working on right now and how you've come to participate with this organization of Dayland? Sure, sure. Um, well, I'd maybe like to get started with uh, a little bit about how I came to Guatemala and what I've been doing over the past few years. And um, yeah, I would say in January of 2017, I was kind of burnt out from being in the startup industry and just decided there's got to be a really great way for me to apply my skill set and just my want for, I don't know, living a more, I guess, altruistic life. Um, and uh, someone just kind of said, you know, if you'd like to go down to Guatemala and volunteer, uh, I've got a really great natural building school that's always looking for volunteers. So uh, I headed down for a month and within that month really fell in love with the country, fell in love with the community and a lot of the opportunity that kind of presented itself in that time. Um, and since January of 2017, I've just really taken the time to kind of travel throughout the country, get to know different organizations that fall into either social or environmental um, impact and uh, have been working with them since. Um, you know, that's kind of when when we got to know each other and uh, it's been a really wild ride uh, since, but in the past year or so, I started hearing about Seeds for a Future and all the great work that we're doing. I know that we'll get into a little bit more about other initiatives that are rooted in permaculture and regenerative living uh, and sustainability, um, but of all of them, it really seemed like Seeds for a Future was taking uh, I think solutions, sustainable solutions and being able to implement them in rural communities where it was really needed so that these families would have access to fresh produce and um, just be able to live healthier lives, which we'll get into as well. Uh, so back in the beginning of the year, um, Dale and I got to meet and uh, they had a position available to work as a communications manager. And I just thought this would be a really wonderful way to kind of introduce storytelling and get to know a different part of Guatemala that I hadn't really visited before and in getting to know them, maybe share a little bit more of that story with anyone that's curious about, you know, how to uh, how to really change the lives of people um, in a really positive way that's been resourceful and uh, successful over the past 14 years. 
Beautiful. Yeah, that's that's how I know you. And <laughs> you've also got a really good overview of the country in the way a lot of others don't, in that you've had a chance to travel to not only just the tourist spots, but many of the out-of-the-way places in order to connect with those communities and also offer a window for people who are traveling there to make deeper connections rather than just passing through and seeing the tourist stuff. And in that time, I'm curious, what have been some of your most memorable impressions and things that have stood out to you that is unique to this beautiful little part of Mesoamerica? That's such a great question. Um, one of the first things that always comes to mind when we talk about this is we're in Guatemala, we're in the land of eternal spring. And when you speak with or just get to meet with um I would say any of the local organizations that are rooted in permaculture um, or regenerative living, they'll often say that a lot of those practices that are now being, you know, coined under permaculture, they don't know what that word is. They didn't come up with this word. It's just like a new age term for something that has been generations long that's been shared, uh, information just handed down, you know, generation to generation. Um, so I think in that context, it's been really amazing to be able to travel through and meet different communities that are following through with a lot of the methods that their, their ancestors handed to them. And after a lot of the turmoil that was experienced over the past few decades um, or even centuries here in the country, to be able to reconnect on that level, um, a couple of the organizations that kind of stand out um, are housed around the lake and of course one is Kishaya uh or located in Kishaya um which you know it's it's CPEC and the fact that you know this this group of families came together and they took the land that was handed back to them or or given back to them and was able to create this kind of wonderland of of reconnecting with nature reestablishing that relationship but then also just having a showcase for the community to be able to see, like we're able to provide for one another, we're able to generate income for our families. We're doing this, you know, in connection with our ancestors. And um, of course it takes quite a lot of hard work, but at the same time, it's just a reciprocal relationship that you're building with your land and within your family. And there's so many different ties that that, that creates. Um, and a lot of stability in not having to resort to other means of work that maybe don't call to your nature or don't call to who you are, let you up inside, you know, um, but you actually get to, to take pride in what it is that you're doing and bringing your family uh, together. So I always say that CPEC is a really, it's, it's a shining star um, in education and in community um it's always a joy to kind of bring people there and for them to be able to see like I said this wonderland um of creation it's beautiful uh another is EMAP um EMAP is a little more tied to the um, I guess I'm trying to to find the right word for this uh but I guess even in their their permaculture certification course when you attend there is into it and so there's a deeper level of knowledge there's a deeper level or a deeper level of spirituality that's connected to the act of connecting with the earth and it's giving to you and how you can give to it um and i i would say between cpec and emop those are the two that i usually like to speak the most about because they are really rooted in community. They speak most to, I would say, the rural and indigenous cultures, um, and they make sure to represent them well. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to, to visit both of those places and connect with those people. Mm -hmm. I even made the little documentary about uh, Kisha, yeah, with Holden while I was there. I'll link to that if people want to see yes. the, the beautiful places that we're talking about right now. Um, but Dalen, so with the organization that you're working with now, you know, many, let's say, uh, we'll go through the wording about this, like aid organizations or people who come in with an agenda to help a uh, rural community, especially in a culture that isn't their own, often start with this concept of a, of a problem that they have a solution for. And I know from speaking with you previously that that was not the main idea here, that you went in to understand more the communities that you were hoping to work with. First of all, could you tell us about the community, its location, and 
a little bit of its configuration and unique aspect. And the process of understanding some of the challenges it was going through before building a kind of a solution or a communication base around it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, similar to Leilani, Seeds for a Future kind of stood out to me as an organization from the minute I arrived in Guatemala. I was at the time working as a representative for a fundraising platform in the U.S. called Global Giving. Um, and so I was their representative in Central America and I was visiting all of their partners and Seeds for a Future, the founders who were living in Antigua at the time invited me up for a site visit. And it was, you know, four hour drive up sketchy dirt roads washed out by the rain. Um, it was really, really rural, um, more rural than a lot of the other projects that I visited. So deep in the jungle that it was very clear not a lot of other organizations in, that work in Guatemala were making it that far. You know, a lot of them are based in Antigua, or based around the lake. And so a lot of these truly rural communities get kind of left out of the conversation. Um, and it was clear to me, you know, the founders brought me up there, but when I got there, it was clear that the whole organization was being run by the community, by the field team who was all based in and born in and from this very small collection of villages way up in the highlands. Um, so the founders, Suzanne and Earl de Berge, they are an American couple who moved down to Guatemala about 40, 50 years ago and arrived as archaeologists. Um, that was their first entree into this village called Chocola. Chocola actually has no relation to the word chocolate, although it was a famous cacao growing region uh, way back in like the pre-classical Mayan era. The chocla is actually a, an allusion to a quiche word, which means pase adelante or, or welcome. Um, and this village, it's, it's really unique. It sits on top of a mostly unexcavated pre-classical Mayan city. Um, and Earl and Suzanne arrived in, I think, 2006 uh, as volunteers on this archaeological dig and immediately connected with the community, came back three years later and wanted to start some form of community organization uh, to assist this community that they had identified as being extremely vibrant and resilient and multicultural and um, that's something that not a lot of people know about Guatemala is that, you know, it is a lot of the rural areas are quote unquote Maya, but there are 23 distinct ethnic groups within that umbrella. So um, Chocola, like many rural areas of Guatemala, experienced a lot of displacement during the Civil War, which was essentially a genocide against the indigenous peoples. And as a result, they've got a mixture of Quiche, Mam, Cachiquel, all of these different ethnic groups and all with their own languages. So it's a it's a unique area historically and culturally. Um, it was also the site of one of the largest coffee plantations in Guatemala um, during the kind of post-colonial era. And as a result, there's a really strong cultural attachment to coffee, um, despite the fact that it, it doesn't actually grow very well in this particular region. So we're kind of on the back slopes of some volcanoes, but coming down towards the coast. So it is very hot and humid and coffee traditionally grows better at higher altitudes where the air is a bit colder. Um, cacao is ideal. And Earl and Suzanne, when they first started Seeds for a Future, wanted to work with these small holding coffee farmers to encourage them to diversify their crop. Um, because the coffee crop just wasn't bringing in enough household income to support healthy, thriving communities. And they came in with that idea, very quickly realized that they were not the ones who who should have been proposing an idea or a, or a mechanism for development. Um, it was kind of an uphill battle. People were resistant. They were like, no, we, you know, coffee is the crop that our ancestors grew that our parents and their parents and their parents grew. We There was a really strong cultural attachment, understandably. And so Earl and Suzanne kind of very quickly shifted their tone and they were like, okay, what, what is it that 
we need. And in conversation with the local community, it was clear that nutrition was the kind of underlying issue um, for all of these other issues. You know, nutrition, poor nutrition perpetuates the cycle of poverty. It makes, it hinders psychological and physical development, which doesn't allow students to achieve in education with what limited education opportunities there are in rural Guatemala. Um, so they shifted gears and what funds they were able to raise, they put in the hands of local stakeholders and the program just kind of evolved from there. Um, it is still today, we are 75% Guatemalan. Most of our staff are indigenous um, and they are all from the local community. So um, Leilani and I are just kind of working in the background. That's lovely. I really like that story because though I have heard quite a few kind of origin stories where there were some initial failures, I also know quite a few organizations from back there, whether or not they're still operating, that didn't necessarily learn from that initial feedback from the community that their ideas were not the best ones or perhaps the priorities of the people that they were trying to bring this to, but rather having learned from it, pivoted as necessary to understand what the priorities there really were has seems to have been the catalyst for what has grown since then. Can you tell me about what this program has become since that learning journey? Yeah, I mean, it's taken on, there's been many iterations um, and I think that's part of the process, right? Is this continual adaptation the community's wants and needs shift over time as all of our wants and needs shift over time. And um, there have also been shifts in, in funding and our ability to, to provide all of these different services. So um, our focus at the moment is building home gardens, helping families build comprehensive home gardens, as well as uh, educating folks on small animal husbandry and comprehensive family nutrition um, in order to allow people to, to grow their own food and have access, sustainable, consistent access to high quality food that they've grown themselves, removing them from a lot of the quite inequitable food systems that rural Guatemalans are subjected to. Um, and as a result, a lot of folks have excess produce that they can sell at market, um, creating economic opportunities. They're there are all these kind of knock-on effects because our approach is quite holistic. Um, I would say that actually the, the building of community is one of the most subtle but most powerful impacts of our program. So um, because our community is the one leading the program, um, they have to build relationships. Our field team go out and visit our families once a week and they're so integrated in what's going on and, and building relationships with, with all of these different groups that, that can be quite divided. Like I said, there was a lot of internal displacement during the Civil War, and there are plenty of studies on the way in which that has created this kind of social fragmentation in a lot of rural communities. There's a lot of distrust of figures of authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so what our field team is doing building relationships is actually one of the one of the biggest parts um but yeah that's that's what we're focused on right now yeah this is always something that's really interesting for me to observe as i've traveled around and, and really stood out to me in guatemala too because it is one of the most biodiverse places in the world wherever you go there is a unique microclimate that can allow it to produce such an incredible array of produce, nutrition, uh, fiber crops, the whole gamut. And the, the history of the culture there has cultivated many different things in different uh, regions around there. And yet, you very often see people who are living with very little resources in abject poverty and do not cultivate a lot of their own food. And I've seen this in the Philippines. I've seen these in other places where you would think that would be the most automatic conclusion. But thanks to that little bit of context that you gave us to the recent displacement of these people, um, the fracturing of these communities, removal of 
people from the land that they knew where to cultivate things, as well as the attachment to this plantation way of cultivating single monocrops uh, just for the, the cash of it, and then going out and buying things which are usually nutritionally devoid, full of plastics and preservatives and you know all of the industrial food stuffs that are being forced on everybody around the world, but especially in these areas, you start to understand and play out the, the progression of how the disconnect between nutrition, the crops that sustain them for so long, and the culture around keeping this within the village has become, you know, well, it's just completely fallen apart. And so, yeah, it's, it's strange, but it is necessary to bring this back into a culture like this, not necessarily from an outside saying this is what you should grow, but from the inside of a community to remind and revitalize the culture of cultivation and connection with native crops that, that you find around there. Can you maybe talk more specifically about what these gardens look like, what some of the iterations have been and how they might be different between the different communities? Yeah, 100%, that's the best part. Um, also, I love that you use the word remind um, because a lot of what we are doing is yeah, recapturing and uplifting knowledge that already exists. Um, so our our field staff, our field team, they already have this history. They grew up eating these foods with their mothers and their grandmothers. And it's just a matter of bringing them back into the public consciousness and um, teaching people how to cook with Flora Maria again, instead of going out and buying uh, packaged chips at the store. Um, so it's just a, it's just a reminder. Um, it's like a remembering, but, um, so our approach is very bespoke, uh, when we sit down to work with a family, um, our recruitment method is actually via word of mouth. Um, and so we work with families who approach us and say, Hey, usually it's because their neighbor, uh, grew a home garden, planted some stuff and they saw what was going on and they were like, Ooh, that looks interesting. Um, they usually come to us and they say we're we're interested in getting involved and we speak with um, all members of the family or adult members of the family, both the mother and the father typically, and make sure everybody's on board. And um, when we've got buy-in from both parties, which is a critical part of our kind of um, gender equity approach, we sit down and look at the space that they have available, which varies hugely. So some families will have a small cinder block structure with about you know two meters of of soil around it and that's it um they might be renting from a landlord they might own it themselves some own smaller plots of land um, that were distributed after the large coffee plantations were broken up to local community members so we do also have families who come to us then say i've got you know quite a sizable piece of land and I just don't know how to how to use it most productively can you help me and so we will go in look and see what the microclimate is like um, because it's quite hilly there actually are pretty big variations in what grows well um, and we'll see what's already there so a lot of people will have banana trees or papaya or existing coffee plants and so we work with what they've got um a lot of times the area is overgrown and kind of just being <laughs> assumed back into the jungle subsumed back into the jungle um so we'll help them kind of clear the land that is useful for planting. We'll look and see if they've got recycled materials in the area that we can use. For example, um, old tires make great, great vegetable beds. Uh, we've also taken old like liter plastic bottles and cut out the top and fill it with soil and you can use it to plant strawberries and other kinds of things. Um, so we're really meeting people where they're at. That's a really integral part of our approach. Um, and the vegetables that we, the vegetables, fruits, herbs that we will set people up with is very dependent on the family's nutritional needs. So our field team are all trained um, by our program director, who is an agronomist and an agronomy engineer is the term in Spanish. I'm not sure how well it translates in English, but um, he 
has a wealth of knowledge on how to select the best crops based on, you know, if you've got two pregnant women in a family, your nutritional needs are going to be very different than if you've got all adult children and mostly men. So um, pregnant women, we work with specifically to make sure that they're getting enough iron and all of these other nutrients that are essential for healthy growth. Um, also infant children, a lot of folks who work in the nutrition space will know that the first 1000 days of life is like the critical period where you need to make sure that kids are getting the right vitamins and nutrients for, for healthy development. So um, we'll plant all kinds of things. There's definitely an emphasis on leafy greens. Um, chard or acelga grows amazingly well. Um, but also we try to provide plenty of, of native crops that are already growing wild that people just don't necessarily know how to cultivate. So yerba mora, chipilin, quistan, um, mashan is a, a variety of big leaf that we can also plant to use to wrap tamales, just like banana leaves. Um, there's also some medicinal herbs like chichicaste that we'll plant. Um, it's actually in the nettle family. So that one, that one has the same kind of like urtication benefits. And then fruits and veg radishes are like prolific. They grow so fast. You just pop them in the ground and like 20 days later, you've got a bunch of radishes. And um, it also depends on what the family likes. Some people don't like radishes. And so if someone says that they don't, we'll obviously shift gears and um, adapt accordingly. But we grow all of our own seeds. And then over time, so the whole program is about a year that we're involved with these families doing weekly site visits. And we teach them throughout all of these different seasons to how to let their plants go to seed or a small portion of the plants go to seed so that they can collect their own seeds and replant next year. So the goal is to kind of make ourselves irrelevant, which is not the approach that most development or aid, quote unquote, aid um, organizations would take. You know, the word aid kind of suggests that. It's putting me in the position of being the giver. Um, I have to provide the aid and you are the recipient. And that is inherently an unequal power dynamic. Um, we're much more uh, akin to, this metaphor that I don't love, but the kind of teach a man to fish uh, kind of old parable. I think we're we're trying to give people the tools so that we can go away and they can choose to, to continue on or not. That is their prerogative. Um, but I think giving people that agency and providing them with education and then letting them choose to do what they want with it is um, real definition of a kind of empowered approach. Mm. Yeah, so refreshing to hear this approach to, to working with communities to try and find solutions that are tailored for the challenges that they've identified for themselves, not just the standards that we would hold them to based on our references from wherever we may have come from. And I'm curious, Linda, to maybe take a step back from just focusing on this project and hear about how you see this stack up with other projects that you've observed in your travels, those that you've worked with closely, and perhaps some of the, the parallels or the differences in this approach compared to the others? Great question. Um, it's interesting because over the past few years, it seems like Guatemala has really become a hub for uh, all things nature-based. So getting back to permaculture methods, getting into natural building and so many other areas of just reconnecting with the earth. Um, so, it's been interesting to watch that emergence, you know, come to life um, and kind of in the context of what you were saying, as far as approach, um, there are very few organizations that I've seen grow into real success uh, where they follow the, the, I guess, methodology or the, the growth process that Seeds for a Future have uh, or has. Um, where a lot of people do come in with that white savior complex. And of course, in different areas uh, of the world, whatever our background, we know what solutions work best for our communities, but arriving into a new location and seeing so many other resources that are maybe untapped um, and assuming that we as outsiders understand how to solve so many of the problems that we see in front of us in this new location, 
um, it leads to a lot of difficulty and um, it's not, you know, it's not a new story, but um, I think Seeds for a Future especially has done a really excellent job of being able to work with the community. And um, as Dalen said, finding a way to kind of work our way out of, you know, one of the primary positions within, you know, those relationships, uh, which is really great. Um, I've noticed that there is more of a focus now on, on some organizations that are, are taking that approach and they're creating these resource centers or these educational centers where uh, the community is tied into the solution. Um, that's the only way that you can really gain success is being able to say, you know, we're not here to to solve your problems, we are just here to empower you with community-based um, solutions that that you know allow you to work with the resources that you feel comfortable. And um, maybe there are gentle nudges, but for the most part, you like Dalen said, you want to meet people where they are. Um, within these these organizations, um, by getting community buy-in by bringing community leaders in to take action and be the educators, be the ones who are reaching out to um, other community members and uh, living in action of what the mission of the organization is. Um, it's the best approach. It's, well, I shouldn't say the best approach, but it is a very successful approach and it offers long-term success um, as opposed to just coming in and, you know, planting a solution that's foreign and just hoping that it grows. Um, so within, I mean, I, I would love to talk about this because it's just starting to, to, to kind of make its way into, to being, um, but Suchi Tepecas, where, uh, Chocola is the department that Chocola is, um, is based. Uh, there are a few other initiatives that are coming about. Um, so I would say within permaculture and regenerative living, we have seeds for a future, um, a few people that, you know, Oliver, you and I actually know are building, um, a natural building education uh, center uh, where they'll be working very closely with community. Um, and there's another organization that's rooted in education for um, younger children who are coming in, teaching them how to get excited and uh, preparing them for what education is um, so they can make the most of it. And I think looking at all three of these organizations and Honestly, I would like to also say that these are all female-led initiatives, which is really exciting as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the approach that we're all taking is, is very much communal. It is making sure that first and foremost, the community is, per, is, is put you know, in the limelight, that we're adhering to the wants, the needs, and um, I guess the cultural norms as well of these communities and working with them on what the improvements are that they'd like to see, what the best approach is for this and how we can best support them in that effort. So we really are taking a back seat and allowing them to shine. Um, yeah. That's so good to hear. I mean, much of my reference to NGOs and charities and nonprofits in the space, especially around the lake where I had the most reference, was not mostly positive. I mean, there were many organizations that were little more than a front for money laundering. It was literally that bad in a lot of cases. Um, and there was a lot of legislation that came up specifically to try and prevent that from continuing. And I mean, you know, there were always a couple of good initiatives on the ground and then, you know, some corruption going on in the background. So it's really nice to hear that this is at least starting to move in a positive direction based on what you've seen and interacted with. And part of what is at the base of a newer approach that Seeds for a Future is pioneering, I actually kind of want to read it off from your website because I, I think these are worth exploring each one individually. And here on the website under the program, it says that the program includes many factors for achieving acceptance and sustainability, namely sensitivity to the cultural context, which we've mentioned, relevance to its needs and interests, and I think to, to their needs, right, is, is the key point there, 
ethnic, political, and religious neutrality, which these things often very quickly fall into favoring one camp or another, especially historically, and the use of appropriate learning techniques, such as learn by doing and guided observation. This is really important because I think what we haven't mentioned so far is many of these communities that we're talking about have very, very low literacy rates. It's very common for people to either not have gone to school at all or to have dropped out very early. And so appropriate learning methods is, is key there. And the last one being designed for affordability and reinforcing effect of early success. I mean, this goes along with the behavior change stuff that uh, we just touched on up until now. Dalen, can you expand upon these a little bit? Maybe how they came about, whether this was something that was built into it from the beginning or has emerged from the learning and the feedback from the communities themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think it has definitely grown. We have grown into these values over time. Um, I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people come into NGO work or want to start an organization and they have the best of intentions. They want to, quote unquote, do good, do something positive to impact people um, in a positive way. But the the prospect of doing good is a lot more complicated than people realize. And you have to interrogate, who are you doing good for? Are you doing good for you because it feels good to help other people? Or are you actually doing good as defined by the community that you're working with? So um, there's actually an amazing philosopher who is Uruguayan, I believe, his name's Eduardo Gurinas, and he has pioneered this kind of philosophy of buen vivir, which is now, I think, kind of all over Latin America becoming kind of undercurrent of development philosophy, and it is this idea of, of buen vivir, of living well, and what does living well mean to you? That needs to be defined by the people who, by the stakeholders, by the people who this program is going to impact. So, um, Sensitivity to the cultural context, I think that was a value from the outset. Um, and that's apparent in the founders' ability to pivot the minute they realized that, okay, we we thought that diversification of crops beyond coffee would be a good thing, but people didn't want it. So, okay, all right, what, what do you want? Um, what are the needs and interests of, of the community? That's kind of relevance to needs and interests. Um, the cultural context is very complex. Like I said, it is multicultural. Um, and I think that is why we have kind of assumed this position of neutrality, which I think would um, maybe ranker with some people, some organizations who are more social justice focused. Um, and especially because we work with indigenous communities and I personally am a proponent of indigenous sovereignty in many contexts and promoting um, promoting conversations in which indigenous groups are able to um, reclaim their their cultural traditions. And yet in Guatemala, that is a really complicated proposition because um, indigenous groups have been divided over and over again. And political politicians are constantly looking for ways to take advantage of communities. And, you know, it's quite it's quite a corrupt situation. And so um, we found that to bridge those divides, it is important that we be inclusive and and not be swayed by by some of those um, sentiments one way or the other. Uh, there is also a lot of religious divide in Guatemala, which not a lot of people realize. Obviously, it is a Catholic country, um, but you've got that kind of has always butted up against indigenous spirituality, and they have kind of formed a like comfortable syncretism over the years. But then during the Civil War with General Rios Montt, you had all of the evangelical influence come in, and there's been a huge clash between the Catholic Church and the evangelical church. And it's resulted in a lot of violence in a lot of cases. And so we have found that, you know, our, our focus is to help families live better, to help people put food on the table and um, create better lives for themselves. So um, whether or not they choose to go to one church or another actually doesn't matter. We, we work with everyone who expresses an interest in working with us. 
Um, and then the learn by doing, like you said, meeting people where they're at also means coming to them with educational materials that they can understand in a form that is most accessible to them. And so um, actually the, right now we're we're raising money to build a new community garden and, and demonstration center because we found that having a place where people can come and see how certain crops are grown and the best techniques for planting and our approach being very experimental, you know, growing things in random plastic bottles that we find. <laughs> Um, we built a vertical strawberry farming system as well um, with some bamboo that we we were gifted from one of our families. Um, so that kind of experimental approach and learn by doing is really is really integral. And I think that's what makes it stick over time, um, as does the reinforcing effect of early success. You want people to feel like what they're doing, they can actually see the results. Um, which is why radishes are so great because you can plant them and then all of a sudden you've got something to eat. Um, whereas some things take a little bit longer to cultivate. So for example, we do also work with people on small animal husbandry. So teaching people how to keep small animals like rabbits, chickens um, as a source of protein because anemia and iron deficiency are two of the biggest nutrition issues in Guatemala. Um, in rural areas, almost everyone you encounter will have some degree of anemia, um, especially women and children. So, um, so yeah, that takes a little bit longer to see results. You have to learn how to breed the rabbits and, you know, but chickens lay eggs pretty quickly too. And, and those results I think are really motivating for people to continue. And, and you see families get really curious about like, oh, well, what else can I grow? Oh, I saw my neighbor had, you know, um, had Moringa in her garden and she was able to sell a bunch of it at market and people paid a lot of money for it. Like, can I grow Moringa? Do I have a space for it? And, and we kind of follow those, those sparks wherever they come up. That's lovely. And I'm curious how you're promoting different cultivation techniques in the larger plots for economic benefit. I say this because I believe you'll remember Leilani that we worked on uh, a local coffee growing initiative in Sununa, where we were based when we started this podcast uh, almost five years ago now. And we were helping to bring in new crops into the coffee rotation. Obviously, you know, coffee is something that they've depended on and that they see a real connection to, even, even though it's only been part of a few previous generations. But the opportunities to incorporate native crops in that area. So we started to breed higher productivity varieties of uh, the local avocados. We're integrating nitrogen-fixing trees, like ice cream being the Inga varieties into there. And our main enterprise at our farm was, was a goat dairy. And very conveniently, goats don't eat coffee leaves. So they work really well for weed control in the coffee fields as well. I'm curious what your approach is through this program to kind of small business opportunities. Um, that's something that we're always exploring. So a lot of our families will end up with excess produce that they can sell at market, but we also have folks who come on board to be piloneros for us. So they help us grow um, seedlings that we can then distribute to the rest of our families. And this is a kind of passion project of both Leilani's and I's. So we're we're exploring ways right now to um, harness the power of, of some form of social enterprise to kind of support the program. Because I think it's not talked about often enough how oversaturated the NGO space in Guatemala is and how competitive funding is and how much strain that puts on organizations. Um, when that that time and energy could be more effectively channeled towards serving communities. Um, and it is a reality now that a lot of NGOs are turning to social enterprise as a way to support their mission and, and grow their organization because donations are a fickle funding source, let me tell you. It is, and, and it's exhausting for the fundraising process. Um, so I think, Leilani and I have lots of ideas up our sleeve, but we're still we're still talking. What, do you have anything to add to that, Leilani? 
not necessarily, but I would think in the larger context, it is really important for NGOs to have their for-profit arm, but then also they're supporting, um, or sorry, nonprofit arm, but then they're supporting for-profit arm. And so the more that we we talk about this, um, you know, developing different different revenue streams, um, it's something that will ultimately benefit, I think, the the community at large, just because from what we have discussed, uh, of course, growing per family and then being able to sell their excess is really beneficial. But if we're able to create employment for a larger um, you know, system uh, in the future, what that is, we don't know yet, but you know, it's been, it's been really great dreaming things up with you. Um, then it, it's, it's hugely helpful for the organization, which means there's potential for further success within our communities. Um, and then also employment. So it's yeah. pretty reciprocal. Yeah. I think the trick is just finding the way to do it that maintains this consistency with our mission and values. And I think that's what we're trial still trying to sift through because the last thing we want to do is be the next quinoa. You know, quinoa was such an important indigenous staple food, and now it's grown so exponentially and become so popular all over the world that folks in Peru no longer eat quinoa um, because it's become just another cash crop. And I see the potential for that with a lot of the crops that we work with, some of the social enterprise ideas that we've had, we're just, we're treading lightly and we're exploring different options because at the end of the day, like everything else that we do, this needs to come from the community. They need to want it. They need to see the opportunity in it as well. Um, so it's not just us coming in and saying like, we're going to grow Ramon seed now. Here you go. Everybody get to work. <laughs> yeah, that has happened too many times in the past already. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm actually curious from both of your perspective, what it looks like behind the scenes. Because like you said, it's mostly people from the community who are leading these efforts on the ground, working with families individually, but from a support context, from working in the office and figuring out what they need to do their jobs effectively. What does that look like for you in the day-to-day? -day? And aside from funding, what are some of the challenges that you're up against? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are so lucky to have a wonderful team. And I think that that is what sustains us in the moments when things get a little bit hairy, as they always do. Um, but I think people might not realize how much of a challenge communication can still be in some of these rural areas. Access to technology, access to internet signal is still very sparse. Um, so getting field reports <laughs> in a timely and effective manner is still an uphill battle at times. Um, solely because our field staff don't have access to a computer on a regular basis. They don't have access to the internet on a regular basis. Um, and we've got our program director kind of going back and forth, uh, spending a lot of time in the rural areas, but then also wanting to spend time with his family closer to Antigua, between Antigua and the city. And so um, ac just access and the lack of technology is a real, is a real challenge. And of course, most of the funding that we get, we want to channel directly into our programs. And so we do that oftentimes at the expense of, you know, buying a bunch of fancy new laptops, which I think is the right thing to do, but it just definitely makes things difficult in other ways. Um, in terms of other challenges, you know, fundraising is always a big one, but I think that's true for nonprofits across the board, especially small grassroots nonprofits. Um, they don't have the expendable income to hire grant writers or to bring in research grants. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg conundrum because you want all the money to go into the program and that is what makes it effective. But unless you take a little bit of that money and put it into the admin and the fundraising, you don't have the money to put into the program. So it's it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, I would say those are, the, those are the main challenges that I see. Would you add anything to that, Leilani? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that we can probably discuss too is um, some of the difficulty that we're experiencing right now, as far as 
uh, throughout Guatemala, there are a lot of family plots and for families to generate income, they will rent these plots. And so right now the Casa de Semillas is on a rented plot. And about a month ago, um, we found out that this center, which is an education center, it's a great hub for the community to come together and uh, kind of rely on um, that that land was not taken back, but it was asked to to be vacated uh, by us. And that dynamic between landlords and renters is often very disruptive for an already disrupted community. Um, so we're kind of working through that right now. Um, aside from land, I think too, uh, even within you know that scenario, um, there's a lot of self-motivation that comes from our team. There's a, a team-oriented kind of mindset. And like I said, I'm relatively new to the, the organization, but in getting to meet our extensionista team, um, they take such pride in what so grateful to have relationships and an understanding of the, the, the need for building relationships and how to uh, be sensitive to different needs of the different families that they're they're interacting with. Um, but just building at a community level is so important to, of course, the program, but you can sense that pride. You can sense that mm, like uh, appreciation for their role within their communities um, just by getting boots on right now, having to move from one location into the next just going in and and they know what they have to do as far as you know packing up and and figuring out how to integrate into a new um space but i would say they're beyond just the the organizational needs and of course some of the difficulties that we can read on paper it's the I would say personal and emotional, maybe um, strength that the team needs in under these sort of circumstances um, and how they're able to kind of band together and just stay strong together. Hmm. There's one more, let's call it subtopic that I'd really love to explore around the work that you do. And that is, what are your metrics for success? How do you gauge that you're making progress in the areas that you would like to? And how do you get that feedback to inform the necessary changes as this is a very dynamic and tailored process? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're actually in the middle of kind of revamping our impact evaluation protocol. Um, so in the past, our main metric of success has been continuation with the program. Um, but that obviously only captures one very small aspect of what we do. And there are a host of reasons why a family, after doing the program with us for a year, might choose not to. Maybe their housing situation changes and they move it, they move to a place where they don't have enough space, or maybe they the woman becomes pregnant again if the mother becomes pregnant again and the father has to go work in the sugarcane fields and there's no one to tend to the garden. You know, there's a whole host of reasons. Um but Thankfully, we do have, uh, we participated in a three-year study with INCAP, the Instituto de Nutrición de Centro América y Panamá, um, and there was a team of researchers that came in and looked at the impact that our program had on maternal and infant anemia. So they studied a selection of families, and they had a it was a randomized controlled trial. So they had a blinded group um, and they looked at anemia levels over time and, and um, found that our program was really effective and in, in treating anemia and treating it in the long run. Um, so both mothers and infants showed lower levels after the three-year study. And that's been a really great tool for us um, to kind of show that this is an evidence-based approach. Um, going forward, and during that study, we had a 75% retention rate. So 75% of the families after a year were still doing some form of what they learned in the gardening program, um, which was great. Um, I will say during COVID, you know, COVID just rocked so many of these communities and our organization included. 
And so we're just now getting to the point where we can reevaluate, okay, what are our metrics of success now? Um, we will look at things like retention rate going forward, but my research background being in the social sciences, my brain is much more qualitative. And so I'm really interested in understanding not just how many people this has impacted and and the kind of numbers behind it, but what what do those impacts look like on the ground? You know, what did the involvement in the program inspire people to go out and do? Um, how did it change their relationships with within the family and with their neighbors and with their community? Um, I think those things are a lot harder to measure, but to me, they're just just as important, if not more important. Um, so we'll have an update for you on that in, in a few months. <laughs> oh, I look forward to that. And from your perspective, Leila, especially from the communication side, what are you looking to achieve with, with your work and how do you measure progress? I think especially uh, nowadays in mainstream media, you or audiences uh, often have a very tailored message about Guatemala um, and about you know different countries throughout Latin America, um, just in general. And it's not always cast in a positive light. Um, and I think we have a really unique opportunity here to be able to share the stories of the community, um, not just the struggles that they're experiencing, but also their success stories, their resourcefulness, a lot of the positive aspects that people aren't gonna get to see if they're not here on the ground. Um, so being able to kind of gain or offer insight or um, you know, just a glimpse into what, what life is like, uh, these communities don't often have many means, uh, but they make the most of what they do have. And they're very well rooted in family and community and they share an appreciation of life itself. So you might be walking down the street and, you know, this kid who is dressed in, you know, what we would consider raggedy clothes, um, is just having the time of his life, kicking a bottle down the street, you know, those sorts of things, the simple joys in life, um, being able to share that. Uh, but I think in the context of Seeds for a Future, again, being able to share the success stories, share um, the from the family's perspectives, um, again, from the team's perspectives and you know what it is that they love about their work with Seeds for a Future, but also what it means for them being able to connect with uh, you know, their neighbors and help them to be able to produce food that as Dalen said, they, they, they can feed their families with and it can improve their health over time um, and so many other benefits. But yeah, ultimately being able to story tell, um, which is funny to say because it's not necessarily my place to story tell, but figuring out how to best take what it is that we are, are developing uh, or have developed, being able to share that in a meaningful way with others. Um, that's really what it comes down to and making sure that we're representing the communities accurately and warmly um, because they don't often get that sort of grace. That's absolutely lovely. I can tell that we could continue down this path and there's so many <laughs> aspects and subtopics within what we're discussing right now that deserve to be explored, but we got to stay within somewhat of a time frame here. I want to thank you both so much for your insights into not only the work that you're doing for the organization and the communities there in Guatemala, but also the larger industry around aid and charity and the complexities of these topics as well. Before we go, can you share with me links where people can learn more, not only about the organization, but anything else that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us on all social media um, at Seeds for a Future. And um, you can follow us on Instagram for some fun like recipes from our forthcoming cookbook, uh, Cocina Campesina. We share all kinds of yummy food and produce from our family's gardens on there. Um, you can check out our July fundraiser. Like I said, we're raising money for um, this community center and demonstration garden. And we are hosting a panel discussion as part of that on the pandemic's impact on food security in rural Guatemala, if that's of interest to any fellow Guatemala NGO workers or researchers out there. Um, it's on July 10th. We would love to have you. You can find that on our website. Did I miss anything, Leilani? No, I think that's it. I'm really looking forward to that recipe book. There's so many 
incredible foods that I miss from being back there. I, I still have such a big part of my heart left in Guatemala. It's so great to hear not only how these projects are going, but mm -hmm. also a little update from the country that I miss so much. So again, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been such a joy speaking to you both. I look forward to catching up again real soon. Awesome. Thank you, thank Oliver. Thank you so much. So nice. Thanks once again to both Dalen and Leilani. I've included a link to their organization, Seeds for a Future, where you can also support them and their work directly if you feel called to do so. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.